Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Steph Turner identifies as a trans spirit individual who is grounded in her own Native American heritage. After coming out in 1993 as transgender, she learned firsthand about needs when she was falsely accused and incarcerated for a crime she did not commit. No consideration was given for her gender identity, and she was placed in an all-male facility. Since this experience, Steph has felt compelled to transcend political and other divisive activities to deeply connect with all sides to resolve the impacted needs. After earning degrees in sociology, anthropology, counseling, and public administration, she realized these fields exist to find answers to our many needs. She went on to found Anacology, the disciplined study of need. In her book, You Need This, Introducing Anacology, the study of need, she explains how our actions, beliefs, and thinking all occur after our factual needs. Well, Steph, I want to welcome you to the show. I'm telling you, you, I was, I often hear from people through other people, or they'll say, "Hey, you know, I've got a book coming out or something." But I have to honestly say, which I so appreciate, you were one of the first people to say that you had read, <laughs> seen some of my things, so some of my poetry, mm. and it that and and that was great, you know, and that encouraged you to reach out to me because I know that you're about to write. Um, but thank you for that. Uh, mm. It's always nice to know that someone is still reading your book. So I know that you attended Oakland University. Are you local from Michigan? Well, I actually grew up in Wisconsin. When I turned 18 back in 1981, shows you how old I am, I moved to Michigan, <laughs> and I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I uh, went to a college in Grand Rapids, and then mm-hmm. I ended up moving around and ended up in Oakland University to finish my bachelor's degree in two, from 2006 to 2008. Then I went back and got my graduate degree as a public you know, an MPA, a Master of Public Administration, with an emphasis in nonprofit management. And then I came back yeah. and got a degree in counseling, but I was not able to finish it because of my backstory. Mm. Well, why weren't you able to finish it? 
Okay, so I'm going to quickly give him a little story here. So I, I came out <laughs> as transgender in early 1993. You know, and among the uh-huh. first I came out to was my trans sister. You know, we grew up as brothers, but we first met as sisters at a trans event in Chicago that spring. Oh, and she captured the moment beautifully when she quipped, well, this really changes the family structure a bit. <laughs> well, then she ended up moving in with me in the summer of 1993, and I warned her that Western Michigan was not trans-friendly, well, at least not in the early 1990s. Well, three weeks into this arrangement, a neighborhood girl accused her of a heinous sex crime, and the girl yeah. then accuses me. Well, despite both of us being trans and asexual, well, this is a girl accused us of being that, well, then popular anti-trans trope of predator. Well, we were both arrested and taken to a men's jail, and we sat there for seven months waiting for the trial. It was at the trial I learned no corroborating evidence was necessary for conviction of criminal sexual conduct. Well, despite the lack of evidence, we were both wrongly convicted and then sent to a men's prison, even though we came out openly as trans. Well, I, yeah. I quickly detransitioned and learned to adjust to this harsh environment. And my spirituality carried me through it all. Native American spirituality filled me with all kinds of insights. And I started understanding things about how we all experience our needs. And I discovered what motivates different political outlooks. Well, I realized things few of anyone recognizes. So after coming home, I finished my bachelor's degree, and I went on to earn two graduate degrees. Well, since then, I've been, I moved here back to Kalamazoo with family, and I've written a book introducing a whole new social, a so, whole new social science called Onicology. Well, the book is called You Need This, and through it all, I learned to stand boldly in the crosshairs of my own intersectionality and creating okay. change by helping others to better understand their own needs. But Steph, I have a question. You know, um, you moved back to Western Michigan. Yeah. Has the climate changed um, for a trans woman, for the trans community in Western Michigan from when you were so wrongly accused and incarcerated? Yeah, somewhat. Uh, I found that down, like the closer you get to the Grand Rapids Center or closer to Kalamazoo, it's more Democrat. The further you get out in the countryside, then it's Republican, hostile, although more and more Republicans are now you know, accepting because they find a family member. Um, so I have Republican family members or, or ex-Republican as they're getting disillusioned since the Trump, Trump era. But yeah, so I find it it's a little bit more. But I would, I would characterize my family as accepting but not embracing. And I made a conscious choice that when I came out here that I would detransition because I'm more trans spirit than transgender. And I now have eight beautiful grandchildren. And it's complex to explain to each one, why is grandpa wearing high heels? And so I decide, made a decision to prioritize the trans spirit part of me than the transgender. Now, if someone were to ask you, I mean, what is the difference between, I mean, like often when we're talking about our community, the LGBTQ community, and they'll say, like, particularly in um, the indigenous community, that there were always two-spirited people, and mm-hmm. these are people who embraced both parts of their sexual identity. But what is the difference between two-spirited, transgender, and how you identify as a trans spirit? Yeah, thank you for that question. It was actually me... Uh, when I end up in prison, 
I had to detransition, but I immersed myself deeply in my Native American spirituality and Native American culture. And then I learned about the Two-Spirit, and I thought, okay, I can count myself as Two-Spirit. But there was some critique within that community saying this is actually a tribal experience, and maybe others outside of the tribal experience are co-opting. So this became an, an, a growing concern among Native Americans that non-Native Americans were co-opting their experience. No, I am Native American, mm-hmm. but I couldn't find a solid background in my Oneida background that there was this tradition. But then the more I ex- went through my own self-awareness, I realized that I was experiencing something very specific that was even beyond what I had learned about two spirits. Maybe they experienced it too, but I be- went on a spiritual self, uh, self-realizing journey that it was almost like a spiritual gift. But about this time, there was within the transgender press, and I would say mainly a magazine called Transgender Tapestry. I, I was a, a, a subscriber, and that was like the main magazine at the time, back when we had magazines, right? And, and so mm-hmm. they, uh, there was a kind of a pushback to the idea that this could be a gift, you know, as if that sounded like you know, trans supremacy, right? Like we're better than others. No, it's just a part of identity. Well, at that point, the, the transgender narrative diverged from my own experience. And I went along with it. Like, we, I'll accept you as being transgender as part of your gender identity. But for me, it never really was all about my gender identity. It was more about a spiritual compulsion to transcend divisions. Judicial, like, for example, I especially got in the judiciary, where they divide people up as the accused and the accuser. And the more they did that, the more they would miss a lot of the nuance because even the most guilty person has some innocence and even the most innocent person has some guilt. But the judicial system isn't, isn't uh, set up to recognize that. But I'm, I find a spiritual compulsion that I have to embrace both sides. And I live with a lot of guys who kind of confronted me about that. You know, I'm going in there and saying, you know, I'm innocent. Well, not so fast, it's Turner. <laughs> I'm not so, I'm not, it's not like I'm fully, you know, straight up murderer. So I, I really had a lesson, especially from these black men who t- taught me about how, how distorted it is, how racist the criminal judicial system really is. And that kind of fed into my understanding that I myself need to transcend these old ideas, these old divisions. And I went along too with the, being able to transcend the division between liberalism and conservatism. And that's a whole other subject we can get into, too. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting as you say that, because, you know, we've had some high-profile trials going on in this country, and one of the things that I was listening to and that I think about you, too, that often the victims get lost. You know, they didn't hear your narrative. They heard the accuser's narrative of Mm -hmm. what they said that went on, but they did not hear your narrative Mm -hmm. or, like you said, how you, you, your life, who you were. And maybe, you know, if there had been, if, like, justice is blind and there's an equality in it where they're going to hear both sides, they would have heard that about you, you know, about your life and who you were. But this yeah. was at the height of the sex abuse panic from the late 80s into the early 90s. So it was very difficult, coming, especially very anti-gay and anti-trans media. So it was very difficult to be once accused to find a jury that would not be so prejudiced by the ongoing prejudice of that time. Mm. 
I can tell you something yeah. else too. It's so I've I've continually reached out to the to Innocence Project, and I don't know if your audience is aware that there is this thing called the Innocence Project that is mm-hmm. independent of the criminal judicial system that looks at cases and start looking at was well, there DNA tested, was there other of uh, other factors that could contribute to a wrongful conviction. And I always got turned down the first time because, well, they had to reach out first to those who were on death row. Okay, so they finally got everyone on death row. I reached out to them again, and they said, well, we have to f- help all those who have life sentences. By the time they were done with that, I was outside of prison. And I reached out to them yeah. again, and they said, well, we have to help people who are still in prison. And it was like, oh, God, well, good luck I have. But this was 2014. <laughs> And I had, to, I had the opportunity to look online because they had some questions in the, in the questionnaire about what about the victim. So I, I kind of looked up and I found her Facebook. And it was kind of awkward looking at it because, you know, they tell you once you're convicted, you shouldn't be like stalking the victims. But it was important for my, you know, seeking conviction relief. Well, I could tell from her profile on her Facebook page, well, one, that she was in the county jail on her fourth habitual for drug offense. But she also identifies as gay. She's lesbian. So it gave me a clue that perhaps what happened is that she was trying to figure out her own sexuality and started gawking my sister, who was not very discreet about hiding the fact that she was trans. And so I think that's why she was so curious and gawking my sister and got us caught up because she was just, you know, she was just a a child trying to save herself. And then I think she maybe maybe even felt some lot of guilt about it. I don't know. But I don't fault her. I fault the judicial system that should know better. Mm-hmm. Now, how has this, you know, I mean, you went on, you got your bachelor's, you have a couple of master's degrees, you've done that, but how has this, what I will call a wrongful conviction, how does it still, how has it and how does it still impact your life? Now, if it was any other crime, like say if I did a, a, a B&E, you know, breaking and entering, or maybe if I assaulted some guy, that, that usually after seven years, then it's like, okay, I'm out of this prison for seven years or even after it had happened. It's like, okay, so it's not really going to be held against you. Maybe in some cases, but, but because this is actually a, considered a sex crime and because the way the girl painted the accusation it made it sound like we had penetrated her, but we didn't. She accused my sister of putting her tongue in her privates. And that under the law was penetration. And it was curious because you'd be no, no physical evidence of that. So it's very convenient for them to, you know, accuse a couple of openly trans people with something that there's no physical evidence for, and then go ahead and, you know. So basically, it was put us in a bind. Now I forgot where I'm trying to thought with where I was going with that answer, but you were asking me again. How, oh. how has it, how did it impact oh, and yeah. how does it continue I, to impact? So I was arrested in 93. In 94, I went to prison. Shortly after I got to prison, the Michigan had passed the sex offender registry. So I am, because it's a first degree, I am sentenced to register for life. So even though I'm on the outside, I actually have something of a life sentence. I cannot get, a, I can't rent any place. I can't, it's very hard for me to get a job. Even with all my college degrees, the background check keeps me from getting a good job. So I'm struggling financially. I, I get by with family help. A big reason why I now live in Kalamazoo among family is because they're helping me in a lot of ways. Also because they're very supportive in me writing this book. So I'm, I, put, I mentioned in the book, but I really lay out the whole story in my second book, which is, which is due for, to come out in, well, spring. Hopefully I, everything goes on time. I've already written the, the second and third book because originally, wow. I one, originally I wrote one book, then I found out it was too long. So I broke it into three. So I already wrote it. 
so I just have to go through it and edit it and you know, clean it up. And in the second book, I actually f used my story as a narrative to explain these onychology principles, so I lay out the whole story. So I'm now in a race to see if that book will come out before I hear back from the Michigan Conviction Integrity Unit. So that's another story. So back in May of this year, I, had, I, I was almost scammed because somebody had tried to scam me and convince me I had to submit my DNA for some kind of profile. Anyway, so I called up the Michigan uh, Innocence Project that I, I had already been in contact with. They forwarded me to the Michigan uh, Attorney General and their Conviction Integrity Unit. Now, I had not really been aware that they had their own Conviction Integrity Unit. Okay, so I'll back up. Some of your audience may not be aware of what a Conviction Integrity Unit is. So after the Innocence Project was starting to exonerate more and more guys, well, this was an embarrassment to local prosecutors. So the prosecutors got into the game. So they said, oh, before you, all these nonprofit organizations claim that they're catching all our mistakes and we can't catch them, we'll try to catch our own mistakes. So they set up conviction integrity units at the local county level. Well, here in Michigan, we have like you know, Kim Worthy is the one, uh, one in, in uh, Detroit, and I think there may be maybe one in Grand Rapids. No, I don't think so. So right now, there's just the one in Detroit. Well, what about the guys who are wrongly convicted in Saginaw or Grand Rapids, like oh. me, or Kalamazoo? So the, Michigan set up a statewide conviction integrity unit. So I filed paperwork for them last summer, and now I'm still waiting for them to give me their response. But they now know that I've openly, like, as an act of civil disobedience, refused to continue registering on the sex offender registry unless they can you know, acknowledge to me that I am maintaining my innocence. Hmm. Wow. Well, Jeff, we're going to take our first break. I mean, that is just like phenomenal. I mean, and it is a book in and of itself. But we're going to take our first break. And then, <laughs> excuse me, we're going to come back and talk about and the Kelly uh -huh. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Um, collections by Michelle Brown. We're talking with Steph Turner. Steph has, I mean, you have had an amazing life. I mean, many people would have seen it as a defeat, but you didn't. You went on, you got your degrees, but it's clear that you're a very thoughtful person, mm -hmm. um, even in how you're dealing with the things that you've gone through. And along the way, you founded anachology. Mm. What is anachology? And um, how did you come up with this concept to, found, to find it? 
So onicology is the disciplined study of need. I'm proposing it as a new social science. So far we have the social sciences of psychology, sociology, anthropology, and even economics. And it occurs to me that all those exist to provide answers to our many human needs. Well, why not study the needs themselves? And I start to realize that what we call a need is an objective phenomenon. So I have a background, I have an undergraduate, undergraduate degree in sociology. And I learned that in sociology, the pioneer was uh, Emile Durkheim. This is like 100 year, 120 years ago. And he established that uh, there are social facts. Th there are things that are true outside of individuals. You know, like democracy. Not one individual yeah. thinks that's something that happens. It exists outside of us. Well, I, and very much in the, same, in the same way, I realize that needs exist as an objective experience. You don't choose your needs. If I'm thirsty right now, it's not because I chose to be thirsty. My body requires fluid. To, to continue to function. So it isn't like, so we can debate that how to get the water, but the water itself in my body is an objective need. You know, one of the things also that attracted me, because your book is called, you, <coughs> excuse me, You Need This, because I've had a number of conversations, and I think that even particularly with this, this time when we've been forced to stay home and think about things, and one of the things that I found, like I was working with a group that was doing grants, and we recognized, we were looking at it and said, you know, people need some time to rest. But no, there's sometimes when you say need, many people feel stigmatized. Like if you say, oh, I need this, okay, or I don't want to be needy, or I need, I'm not strong enough to do for myself, or it's a sign of weakness. But like you said, you know, there are some things that you need, and to be able to express that yes. without guilt, without feeling stigma, mm -hmm. is so important. But many people can't do that. And part of it, I think, is conflating want with need. I need water. I want some soda pop. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so they may feel guilty for always going after something they want, but something I had learned back then, I think I learned this from reading a lot of self-help books, but that behind every want is some need. And that it's actually impossible to want something without first needing something. And that the want is usually a substitute for what we actually require. I mean, that's true, because if, if you think of just using that, if you see someone and they say they need something to drink and they go get soda, where their body needs water, maybe that would open up a discussion to maybe there's no clean water, there's not access to water, but it's not just that, you know, oh, you want pop. No, your body needs this fluid. Yes, exactly. I point that out in the book, too, that the body requires at a core level a fluid equilibrium but then our bodies evolved to maintain that through water. If Earth was somehow filled with like some other liquid substance, we would evolve with that. But our body requires water because it has evolved with water. Now, I also apply this to emotional needs. So our, we have evolved to need companionship, to need friends. 
But lately, we've been settling for substitutes by saying, I have 300 friends on Facebook. They're my friends. <laughs> I don't talk to anyone really closely. I don't keep anyone near me, and I suffer. That's because I don't have any real friends. Mm-hmm. Do you find, like, in, your, in, in observing it, that people sometimes don't understand some of the things that, the issues that they still have, that they don't recognize that they don't have real friends, that they might have a thousand Facebook friends, but that need that you have to connect with someone, you know, on a one-on-one, a real basis isn't being met. And so in your book, do you help people recognize, you know, you might think, well, why am I unhappy? You know, (laughs) I've got a thousand friends on Facebook. Why am I lonely? Why am I unhappy? You know? Right. And just so you know, I actually structured the book something like a reference book. So instead of reading it cover to cover, I wrote it in such a way that if you wanted to, you could jump right into the middle. Uh, Some words Uh may come up like, oh, what does that word mean? And it's every word that's new, I italicized it, and you can look it up in the glossary, and the glossary will tell you where it's first introduced in a book. So it's written like a reference book. So the, the, at some point, it might give that reader an idea like, oh, maybe friendships are too shallow and not, not really getting resolved. But, but I, I don't spend too much time on any one thing because this is like the first book introducing the idea. And I cover a lot of ground, but I don't go in too much depth on one thing. And that makes it very, I think, easy to read. You can read like a page or two at a time and then pick it up later. Instead of like some books, you go, wow, this chapter is 30 pages long. I don't know if I have time for that. What is the meaning of anachology? Anachology. So it comes from, the, comes from the Greek word for it, need, is anake. And I'm still trying to find out the full etymology, but I do know ana is the Greek preface, like for again. Like we say re, like I retook that test, re. So that's their prefix, ana. So it's k. And that's something I've learned about needs. So in the book, I talk about needs as a cycle. We all, all our needs are, are, are different cycles. And again, I can go back to the beginning of my experience in prison where I picked up a magazine, a little short little publication called uh, Four, Stru- Four Winds. It was a Native American publication. And I read this article from this author named Don Coyas. And Don Coyas pointed out that we all go through these four cycles throughout our relationships. And I point that out in the book. In fact, I even have on my website a downloadable sample where you can download the spreadsheet, put in your birth date, and you can find how your own life spreads out through all these cycles. So like the seven-year itch or when you were two years old was a terrible twos because you were in your West. And when the seven-year itch was also in your West is your harvest time. But when you first fell in love, that's when you were in your East going to the South, and your friendships were really the strongest in the South. So I, I use a lot of wisdom when I learned from Don Coyas. I end up having a brief, inter, uh, brief uh, correspondence with him because he also put together a 12-step program specifically for Native Americans. And I was, on the, I was the secretary of the prison group for, sec, for Native Americans, so I went ahead and got this tape, uh, tape series and played it for them, and we all kind of benefited, realized, because Don Coyce had realized that Native Americans have a lot of issues with alcoholism, even though it's, stereotype, but it's stereotypical, but it you know, has a truth to it but that a lot of them drop out of 12-step programs. In fact, most of the people who stay in 12-step programs are white, middle class, 
because that program was shaped for their way of thinking. But for many people who are persons of color or Native American, they tend to drop out of these programs because it doesn't really speak to their life experiences. So he put together a program to, put, to do just that. And the more I went over it, the more it inspired me to come up with something, not just the psychological concepts he was learning from, you know, Abraham Maslow or, you know, from Adler. He was like, I was thinking, like, what about from an actual Native American perspective? And that's how it came out as onikology, using the Greek word uh-huh. onike to need, the study of need. Uh-huh. That's interesting. You know, uh, it's interesting that you have such a rich Native American spirit and background, but you went to a Greek. You found the word for it from Greeks. That's interesting that you that you did that. You know, um, one of the things that you talk about is how emotions are conveyors of need. Yes. What do you mean by that? So anytime you experience a need, it is, oh, excuse me, anytime you experience an emotion, it started as your body informing you that you have something need. You had something going on that you need to reach out and put, bring back in, or, which is like desire, or you need to push something away, which is like a threat. And so it, emotion prompts you to be aware of something and that you may have to act on it or to not act as it may be, but emotion has the idea of E, like effect, to like, put you in motion, it is to respond to a need. So, and apart from need, there's no emotion. In fact, I have a quote in the book, there is no such thing as pain apart from unresolved needs. Mm-hmm. But you know, a bit, but again, you know, we talk about there's a stigma around me. There's a stigma about being, oh, why are you so emotional? And again, saying mm-hmm. that they're so emotional that, and sometimes they're linked. Oh, they're so emotional because they are needy. Well, in a way, yes. Yeah, but yeah. how do we change that that perception? Because I think that if a lot of people could get past these things that people have said to them that are negative about what really isn't, that, you know, your emotions are telling you that your body, your spirit needs something, how do we get past What's out there in, in society, in the world? Well, part of it, I, I would say, is, is to go ahead and start with a need that's less controversial. I need some water. You know, or I really need to spend more time with my kids. And then that gets to the second part, like, well, it's not just my needs. So do you need me to pick up after that? Do you need me to clean the car? Do you need me to pick up some groceries for you? So that can be easier for them to acknowledge that they have need because I'm offering them to serve their need. Mm-hmm. And I think it becomes now, easier then to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Is this book helpful not only for self-discovery, but for others to recognize and acknowledge where someone will be coming from or to even see that, like I said, that as I go through life and I might say, oh, I don't want to hang around them, they have this, but recognize, oh, they aren't being needy they have a need and that's something I can maybe help with yes. or extend myself. 
So one of the things I point out, I think this is in chapter three of my book, is that there's what I call a need experience funnel. That is, at the most basic level, our bodies search for some kind of equilibrium. I use the example water again, the fluid. It's not like I literally need water. My body needs to transmit nutrients and cells through uh, nutrients and salt and all the things through the cells. But then the next level is resource. I need water. Water is the way I do that. Then the next level is access. Where do I get the water? Well, I have a bottle of water here I bought from the store, but maybe I could build my own well if I lived out in the country and I get my, my own water, but that's access. Then the last one is psychosocial needs. I'm, I do a lot of writing about this aspect of psychosocial needs. That is, do I get the water completely myself so I can be very self-sufficient? Or do I rely on others? Like I go to the store and I buy a bottle of water and I trust the water will be good. Or I get it out of my tap, and I hope the water is not bad, like, you know, what happened in Flint. So that's mm -hmm. psychosocial. And now if I find others are untrustworthy, then it really it, it impacts my trust, my, self, my psychosocial needs. And psychosocial needs are self-needs, like self-sufficiency, autonomy, uh, personal space. And then there are other self-needs, like friendship, companionship, supporting one another. And sometimes we need to focus more on our self-needs, and other times we need to focus more on our social needs. And that's why there's these seasons that I learned from Don Coyas. Winter is a time to focus on our self-needs. Summer is a time to focus on our social needs. Spring is a time where we transition from focusing on the self-needs over to more attention to the social needs. Autumn is a time of harvest, and we focus less on the social needs and more on the neglected self-needs. Mm -hmm. And it, like right now, it sounds like really technical stuff, so I'm trying to make it a little more interesting by providing examples so it isn't so, quite so boring. One of the reasons why I'm still writing a book, because my first attempt, it was too boring. <laughs> it sounded too academic after coming out of two graduate degrees. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in some ways, when you talk like about that and you talk about the seasons, I mean, it also makes me think how we aren't separate from the earth. Exactly. We are part of the earth. Yeah. And what you're talking about in the seasons is what, what's happening with Mother Earth. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, which in, in some ways really harkens back to your Native American roots. Yes. And at the root of this understanding of the Native, you know, Mother Earth is the idea that we're moving towards and then moving away. Moving towards, moving away. And that's what the cycles are. Just as we are moving, the, the Earth is tilting towards the sun, now it's tilting away. Tilting towards the sun, oh, now we're tilting away. It's autumn. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. I mean, you know, I mean, there's so much of it like you said, I know that, did it come to you like on an academic level first and then it was like, I heard you say how, you know, I had to break this down into something that, that people will read, but did you start with like a concept and then so, and then did it sort of hit you like, wait a minute, this is just like, you know, the four seasons, these are the four directions. I mean, what was, what was the initial seed Actually, the initial thing was, I would say the first initial thing was back in the 19, late 1980s, I was reading a lot of self-help books, trying to figure out how to get my life in order. 
only to find out what really was at the root of my issues was repressing my transgender side and not really embracing fully my Native American beingness. And so I read a lot of self-help books that was the, 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 the kernel of, of inspiration. But then when I embraced the Native American side, it gave it context. And then when I got really you know, in tune with my transgender experience, that allowed me to realize I'm transcending divisions. I'm seeing things from a whole different perspective. And I can recognize things by, just by floating up higher and looking down and realizing things that are there when you can't really see it if you're standing right amongst them. If I'm standing in the trees, I can't see them on the trees. But if I stand above the forest, oh, now I can see things I've never seen before. So I actually began with a lot of self-help books. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to really get the, wrap your head about, around this and to write the book? Uh, so I would say it was, it was a long journey. And part of the reason why I went to college is like, okay, I know this stuff. Who's going to read a book about it by someone who doesn't have any degrees? So I went and got the degrees. Oh, and because I, I have this problem with the SOR and, you know, the whole homeless situation, I, it also helped me get through a lot of years on student loans and uh, scholarships I got through my Oneida grant. So, yeah, so that was part of it. But it also helped me put the whole uh, structure of the – uh, you know, being able to put structure to all this ionicology. And so it, it took me all that time to really figure it out. But I've been working on the book for a while. But last year, during the pandemic, I finally got, I had to leave a job I had, which I didn't mind because I didn't like it. But I went online. Now I am now a, a tutor for Cambly. This is an online tutor to help students around the world to practice speaking English. And I specialize yeah. in helping my students practice for job interviews. That's why I can say I've done hundreds of interviews. <laughs> I keep doing them every week. But these, pe- these students have helped me to keep my English at a more basic, understandable level. And that really helped my writing. That's why the book is now finally being able to be completed. Yeah. Uh-huh. So <laughs> who would you say? I mean, to me, I mean, I think that, I like the way that you said the book is set up so many people could benefit from it. But who's your target audience? Uh, so I would say my target audience are those first who probably have an interest in social sciences, but maybe disappointed that they have a lot of questions about what is politics? Why is the economics still such a mess that we have all these you know, economists trying to tell us answers that we never quite can find good questions for? And so I would say the first one is those who are deeply searching for answers. But beyond that, I would say those who are searching for answers generally, especially those who are out there who are disillusioned with the political divide. They're really upset about political polarization. And I would say that's the next tier of my audience, those who need to find some answer to why are we so divided politically. And I do think that my book actually provides the best answer. I've written, I've read other books that do it, and some of them are okay, but they never get down to the real thing that separates it, and that is our different priority of needs. Conservatives have a different priority of needs than liberals or progressives. Okay. Do you think that because of the pandemic, because we really have had to, many of us can no longer take for granted, you know, that regular get up, go work, do this, mm. you know, have all that. We've had to almost do like a reset. Many of us yeah. have been home. Do you think that that also makes this an ideal time for people to use this as a, a reference as they de- redefine what is normal or how, how they're going to 
reemerge from mm. being at home. Yes. I do think it's a good timing for this book with all that's going on, pandemic, post-pandemic, and the great resignation, how the people are getting disillusioned with the very idea of working at the office. So, yes, I think it's a well-timed because, and also because we now have very short attention spans. So it's easier now for them to, okay, let me look this book up. I can read a page and a half, and I can finish it later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's also, I, I think I put in there, it's, it's 80 diagrams, but since I've updated in my last edit, it's actually over 100 charts and diagrams. So it's very visual. Uh, what are the charts and diagrams showing? So in the chapter, chapter two is the one about the motions are uh, conveying needs. And I remember reading somewhere that there are like four or five different ways. And it already aligned with what I had already discovered. So I have these cycle diagrams for each way emotions convey a need. So later I have like I experience, uh, I describe the need experience funnel. So I actually have a diagram of the need experience funnel with the four levels. Then later on I have a diagram about the, you know, the, the four cycles. I have many diagrams about the four cycles. I mean the four seasons cycle. The four season cycle. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you put thought into it, and also the fact that you recognize that because not only because we're home, but we've gotten so quick to to you looking online or Google searching something that you set it up in a way that if you have lost that ability to sort of sit down and read, you can pick up a section, look at it, and if you're a visual, someone is a learner, here's diagrams and things to to help that. Mm-hmm. Did it evolve like from when you first started writing it to where you took into consideration, oh, well, this is how people are, are learning. This is how people are taking in information to, to be in this format of the the short chapters, the diagrams, the visual. I tell you, it's mostly from my bias as a reader that I prefer short sections broken up by subtitles and sub-subtitles so that my brain can quickly organize the outline of what I'm reading. So, And I realized mm-hmm. a lot of the self-help books I've really enjoyed, it turns out they sell a lot of copies, they do that too. So I figured, why not you know, go with that format? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to take our second break, and if you're just joining me, I am speaking with Steph Turner, the author of You Need This. I love that. Introducing Anarchology, the Study of Need. We'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode.
And we're back here with Steph Turner. Steph, um, you've talked about this book. When can people get it now? When will it be available? Where is it available? So two ways to answer that. First one, I'm going to be self-publishing on Amazon because I've in my research about this it seems right now Amazon has pretty much a monopoly on helping new authors get started now I'm not comfortable I don't like Amazon as a company but if I'd really want to get started it'll be available on Amazon but I've also contacted the resistance bookstore and community nonprofit I'm not sure how many of your audience are aware of this but it's people from our own community who are starting this new bookstore in Lansing and I've reached out to huh? them for a book launch, hopefully my aiming to, I'm aiming to launch the book on December 20th or December 21st. It's the winter solstice. I had originally wanted uh-huh. to launch, I had originally wanted to launch the book on June 20th, the first day of summer, but got delayed. And so right now I'm aiming for December 20th. And if they're agreeable that the resistance will have all the paint will dry and they're still, they're still doing the remodeling and they'll get all the things ready so I can be probably the first one to launch a book at the new bookstore. Wow. And that's in Lansing, eh? I, yes, I uh, had not heard of that. Okay. 515 okay. Ionia? Yeah, so it's a new bookstore uh, by, by people of our own LGBT, LGBTQ community, LGBTQAI. So, that, yeah, so they're opening a bookstore right there in Lansing. And will you be... Are you planning on doing like a book tour or being on a being available to come in and talk to people about the book and your work? So my first step is getting this book event launched there. Now I'm in con- I'm also in conversation with a smaller independent bookstore here in Kalamazoo, and it's called Kalamazoo Books. And so I've yeah. talked with them. Uh, but then it sounded like they were still doing some, like, you know, still some issues of getting people back reorganized and doing these events post-pandemic. So I set the, set up some conversation with them. But at least I do want to launch my second book there in the spring, knowing there'll be probably much better weather. <laughs> and what? Okay. Well, you told us about about this first book. Um, what is the next book? You told me you had a couple of other books in, mm-hmm. in mind that you, yes. you were working on. What are the other books? About? We need this. So the first book is You Need This. Second book is uh-huh. We Need This. <laughs> and the third and, book is We Need You. <laughs> oh, I like that. Okay, so give me an overview of where, where You Need This leaves off. Okay. Where... Says, we need this pickup. So you need this introduces onychology, and in the in the introduction, it explains that it, that onychology can be broken into three areas: research, academic, like most of us wouldn't be able to understand, and then it's clinical ones, like when we have clinical psychology, and then there's accessible onychology, just like popular psychology, anyone can read it. So in the second mm-hmm. book, it's all. Accessible on ecology, and the language is very simple because that's what I really was influenced by my Cambly students to keep things really simple and accessible. So I, that's where I had the whole narrative about what happened to me in 1993, and so it's, I use that as narrative as a way to give an example to the on ecology principles. So the so the second book lays out on ecology principles and a bunch of wisdom statements, adages, things like oh, all core needs sit equal before nature, or the standard applied sets the standard replied. 
which actually you find that in scripture actually. So, uh-huh. and, and another one is intellect is easily overrated where love is underperformed. Even uh-huh. a little bit, of, even a little bit of humor, like one for here is two uh-huh. wrongs don't make two wrongs don't make a right, but sometimes they make a law. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. And then the third book I get into is the idea of. Uh, a clinical onychology, and it introduced the idea of defunctions and refunctions. So what we have right now in psychiatry is this thick book, I have one on my shelf, called The Diagnostic Statistical Manual, trying to explain mental disorders. But the whole concept of mental disorders is under continuous excelled by other critical thinkers. And I, and I suspect it won't be, that won't be around much longer because it misses the larger context of why we are struggling through any problems. It isn't because I have a mental illness. Like, say, if I'm feeling depressed, it's not because I have a chemical imbalance. It's because there are things in my environment creating challenges that my life is, cannot quite rise to because we're not supposed to. So, it, so this book, Onychology, the third one, lists all kinds of defunctions, not disorders, things that are causing us not to be able to function fully. But then it offers a list of refunctions, things we can then restore and then refunction. And the first refunction is the most important, love. Mm-hmm. And then wow. throughout my book, I point out that all of these ideas that we now kind of put off into inspirational scripture, religion, philosophy, no, they all have an objective core. These can actually be empirically measured using social science. Uh, <laughs> do you see that eventually this being taught in university as shoot? I could even see this even as high schools or or becoming a practice because, I mean, some parents, if they thought about that, think of how I can only imagine how they would interact differently with their children if they Mm -hmm. recognized what the the emotion was conveying about the need that the child needs. I mean, how do we get it from, how do we make you the next Oprah? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where, you're ta- where you're talking about this and that people are really thinking on this level. Have you had conversations with others in social work and psychology about this concept? A little bit, but I decided I first should write the book. But I want to tell you that the fourth book would then be the academic level where I actually want to put together a prospectus of this is what academic onychology will look for. And then I want to reach out to Western Michigan University right here in Kalamazoo. And they have a PhD uh-huh. program for called Independent where the candidate, they, they present their own idea for what they want to study. I want to present to them onychology. After I've already published three other books, the popular and then the clinical side, so that they would almost like, uh, you know, they want to almost like call me to come in like they would really want to. Because, you know, if I don't, I'll just go to Michigan State or back to Oakland University, you know, so it's competition, right? So that's what uh-huh. I see. But I did have a premonition, and sometimes my premonitions come true. I had a premonition that this won't really take off until about 30 years after I'm gone. And mm. so, okay, so, but maybe right now it's just like a grassroots thing. People talk about it. Just the way like sociology was really getting its roots uh, back in 1900, you know, about the time uh, that Durkheim was publishing a lot. But it wasn't really embraced as a full academic until long after Durkheim. In fact, it took 
B.F. Skinner with his behaviorist approach and his experiments to convince universities that psychology is an actual social science. Until then, it was categorized as a philosophy because there was no way to prove things. How can you prove what's in the mind? Social science has developed all kinds of tools now, so maybe mine will come a little quicker than sociology and psychology, especially mm-hmm. as this was recently found out like five years ago that up to one-third of all psychology experiments could not be replicated. Wow. And one deficit that psychology has had is that when it looks at the inside of the, of the mind and behavior, it often reduces down like it's all mental when it's really in interaction with, this, with the environment. And so they miss the context. Sociology will sometimes bring that context, but sometimes they can miss other parts. Anthropology looks at whole cultures. But again, each one of these look at a certain angle and miss, miss part of it. I'm hoping onychology will continue to look at all of it. That's why the first paradigm is nature-based, nature-based onychology. Mm-hmm. You know, because sociology has a paradigm of conflict theory. There's interaction, uh, symbolic interaction, and there's structuralism. There's like, the three main paradigms for which sociologists use to examine social, you know, social, social things. Psychology has its own paradigm. I'm creating the first one based on Native American wisdom or worldview. That is, look at nature to understand the world. And then I even quoted a famous phrase in the Anishinaabe called Wasa in Nabada, which means we look in all directions. Mm. Mm. So in other words, we don't just look at the mind and then say, well, let's just put the social society environment on the outside because we need to look at the mind. No, let's look at the mind and society and all history, all of it, all at the same time. <laughs> Holistic systems approach. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that I think that you know, I often tell people, it's almost like to me, we were rush, 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 and the pandemic was an act of nature to say, okay, you people need to slow it down and think, you know, and reevaluate, yeah, reevaluate mm-hmm. how you're living and what matters, and so it seems to me that it's the perfect time for this to be introduced and give people like who aren't in a rush to go back into the office, who are thinking about how they're going to live, to give them time to think about this, what you're talking about. Yes, and one of the important emphasis in the book is that as we get through more and more a part of modern society, or even what some would call postmodern, is that we've gone further and further into generalizing, trusting in general views. So we say, you know, all liberals think this way, or all progressive want this, or all conservatives think that way, when it's not really true. There's nuance, there's details. But part of the reason why I point out in the book is because we are more and more put, uh, enduring loads of pain. I mean, most of us, especially people of color, know all too well about historical trauma and intergenerational trauma. Dan Coyce actually addresses that in his 12-step program, where that's not very well addressed in the standard 12-step program. We have to address that in, in, in the um, Indian country because our elders were taken away and pushed into boarding schools and had their language and their culture taken from them. We have to restore that in order to get back to full wellness. So that's a lot about the book, too, is looking at a larger perspective of wellness and getting back to how do we actually fully resolve a need when the rest of society is just settling on, well, that's just ease the pain. Uh, everything will be okay, but it won't be. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I mean, you touched on it a couple times, but how important is this for communities of color, uh, indigenous people, I mean, who, like you were talking about, that there's a historical trauma that mm-hmm. we are, have dealt with. And even, I would say, many in, in, in the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. who have, I know that you wrote it like for everyone, but how important is it that these communities start to recognize these concepts? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Because quickly I'll tell you a story. One of the things that was very inspiring is that I had to go through a, a group program when I was in prison. I didn't want to, but I had an LGBT mm-hmm. friend and a Christian friend, and they, they didn't know each other. And they both talked me into taking this program. So I took the program, even though I was maintaining my innocence. But one of the things they showed me was the offense cycle. And the offense cycle was saying that when you were committing a crime because you acted out. Then after you act out, well, you feel guilty. So you go to this letdown phase. Then you go through a pretend normal phase. Then you build up again because you haven't dealt with yourself. And then you act out again. And you keep going through the cycle. I remember they handed that to me like, you know what? For one, it's upside down because they had to act out in the bottom. And they had to uh, build, build up as like it was backwards. So I realized it was the Native American cycle that I learned from my elder, Don Coyas. And then I realized, too, that this is actually part of a larger cycle. But then the institutions go through that, too. So in Chapter 5 of the book, I point out that the offense cycle doesn't just apply to criminals or, or felons. It applies to the police. <laughs> and I use yeah. that police as an example that when they arrest, then they, they're going through this pretend normal, then they're going through this build-up phase, then they act out. They're doing the same thing. So I think it, it's like very egalitarian. It, it equals the playing field to, follow, to, really to present to the police you know, in a very, like, you know, neutral way, not to like shame them, but hey, pointing out, you know what you're doing, what, the, what you're saying, what the felons are doing, you're no different. Mm. It's true. Mm-hmm. And Dan Coyes, I remember oh. reading an article about Dan Coyes saying that not only do our lives go through these four seasons in a, about a four or five year cycle, well he said four years, I observed in my life five years, and everyone else I've observed, it's like a five year, so you go through a full season, about a 15 month period. Well, he pointed out this also applies to organizations. So it's very applicable to not only to individuals, but to groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, really, if you stop and you think about it, it's like, <coughs> excuse me, after you see the same behavior, and it depends on which side you're on, mm-hmm. where the narrative is good or the narrative is bad. Yes. And also where the narrative is generalizing and overlooking specifics. Because I point out in the book that if we would get to specifics, we would, be more, we would listen more to each other and get beyond our guardedness. We could learn, like from Brene Brown, to be vulnerable, that we actually can connect with each other if we would just drop our guard and realize we are all in pain. Yep, it is true, you know. Even even those who say, oh, I'm strong, I'm okay, that in and of itself is you're not okay, you know. I mean, uh, to, to not even think about it, you have to acknowledge it. You have to be open to it, to recognize, to be able to even say, you know, today I'm not okay. I might be okay Monday through Friday, but come Saturday, you know, <laughs> no, it's, I'm just not. 
I could see this almost every day in prison when the guys would say, are you afraid? Were you afraid? And I'm thinking, no, you're afraid. That's why you were acting that way. But you're afraid to admit mm-hmm. that you're afraid. You're afraid of fear. <laughs> so, but if you could just, and they turn their fear into anger. So they're very guarded. So, but, you know, but that, I can understand that's you know, their way of projecting that they can't really feel comfortable. They have to be a man, you know, don't let anyone see you sweat. And they took that to extreme. But I did notice that for most guys in prison, if they've been there for a while, they tend to calm down. Sometimes they get an attitude adjustment from the lifers who've been there 20 years. And they said, you know, I remember I was like that too when I first came in. I settled out. I got smart. You want to, let's get smart and t- t- tell you what. You keep acting like that, you're probably going to get smacked in the face. But if you settle down mm-hmm. a little bit, you'll find out that it's not so bad if you stop making it bad. So they have this phrase, do the time and don't let the time do you. Mm-hmm. Hey, exactly. Don't let the time do you. And, and you know, and it seems like you did the time, but then you continue to think, develop ideals, thought about afterwards, and, and did more. You know, like I said, you did not let it defeat you. Where many people are like, oh, I don't have this. You, you developed this thought, which is probably a seed, but the seed grew and grew and grew. And now we've got not one, but soon to be three books coming out, and, and really a tool, a resource to help people understand not only themselves, but those around them I can without add too, fear or stigma. I can add, too, that one of the audience I had in my mind while I was writing it was prisoners. I've been in their shoes. I know that situation. So I've actually written some material that could give them encouragement. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Well, hey, you know, anything that, well, like I said, especially how I like how you say, we need this, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you're in that time, you, they need that. They need to be able to have these tools. Like you said, you went in in one way, went in thinking one way, then you said, wait a minute, <laughs> no, let me mm-hmm. rethink what's going on. What do these people need and what they're doing? Yes. Well, Steph. How do you have a website or things that people want to keep up with what you're doing, where you're at, um, the coming events? How do people know about this? Yes. As I have a website called valuerelating.com, valuerelating.com, one word. And now it's become my author site. So I've actually had this website for a while. I've been trying different business things. It's not been shaping up too good. A lot of challenges. But now that I'm working on the book, it's all set up like an author. Anyone can go to it. You can even download download a sample of the book. It also has, the sample also has this spreadsheet where you put in your birthday and you can read how your own life balances out all these different cycles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping... And <laughs> ideally for the winter solstice, <laughs> um, yes. the bookstore is again called in Lansing. The Resistance. The Resistance. Okay. Yes. And, and, it, and you can always look, uh, search on Facebook. You can find it there. I don't think the website's ready. I keep trying to click on the website, and it says not ready. Mm-hmm. But they they do have a presence on Facebook. The Resistance, and the address is five one five Ionia in downtown Lansing. And they will post then as they get closer, I mean, when they're ready, and that that will give updates on hopefully it will happen on the solstice, but if not, the other day. 
And then you mentioned a place in Kalamazoo. Yes. Book uh, called Kalamazoo Books, and I'm and I'm developing a relationship with them. So they had an event back on uh, October 30th, and it was also a great excuse for me to dress up. I dressed up like Lady Gaga in these eight-inch heels. I'm glad you didn't fall. Well, <laughs> well actually, yeah. I did because I had this weird blonde wig, and I couldn't see, and I fell. But I didn't get hurt. I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty good with eight-inch heels. I even have ten-inch heels, so eight-inch heels feel feel easy compared to the ten-inch heels. I imagine. I imagine. <laughs> well, Steph, I want to thank you for reaching out to me and for sharing this information. Um, when you find out for sure about. Um, at the resistance, let me know, and I will put a follow-up post about it so people will know to do that. Um, yeah. Again, the book that's available now is You Need This. We'll be Introducing uh-huh, uh, on Amazon, right? It'll oh, be, yes. and hopefully, it'll, hopefully in other places. Um, but uh, it will be available. I have, um, it has an e-book and a paperback. Yes, it'll be ebook and paper. And the way Amazon sets up, once I start on them, the ebook can only be available through them. But I believe the paperback can be available elsewhere. Okay. Um, when you have at the resistance, are you planning on having books there to sign? I'm, I'm hoping that I have up like five copies ready because I don't expect to be a very large event. But if anyone anyone wants to, you know, those five copies get bought up, I will definitely be able to order more for them. Okay. Or, or if they order them in advance, they can bring their copy there and talk to you yes. in person and, and get it signed. Yeah, because the website now, does have a pre-order page. Uh-huh. Now, are you going to – is there a memoir in the works? Because, I mean, that part of your life, the, the unfair incarceration, uh, coming back, you know, working, going to get your degree – is there a memoir in the works? Well, well, just like you, I've written a lot of poetry, so I've thought that the last thing I might ever publish is get all my poetry together, going back to 1977, when I was like 14 years old, and just put it all uh-huh. together, and, and then that could actually tell my life story better than me trying to write, down, write it down, because I was, that was for me therapy back then. I would write uh-huh. poetry, and even a lot of it was lyrical, so I ended up writing a lot of songs back then, too, so that, that actually being part of a good way of letting out my story of how I lived my whole life. And I kind of want to leave it for, as a legacy for my grandkids. Oh, that's lovely. That's really lovely. Well, Steph, I want to thank you for taking the time to reach out to me, for taking the time to talk about your work. I look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, I hope that you'll stay in touch. Well, yeah, thank you. Okay, thank and you I want you to have, well, it's been a pleasure. It's been very interesting. And you know what? I'm going to try to hold off until December so I can get the book and have you sign it. Wow, okay. And so my next challenge is to finish the book. It's going to be like a week after. My, I wanted to get it done by the, the 20th, tomorrow, but I was delayed. That, but I'm giving you another week, and then I'll start putting together advanced copies, author print copies. So I'm thinking about, yeah, early first week of December, I should be able to, should be able to have physical copies. Well, I'm looking forward to mine. You know, I always love a good book. That's one of the beauties of this. I've met some really great authors with great stories about their lives and things. So I have plenty of reading, and I'm going to add you to my list. All right. It should be about 250 pages. 
Oh, easy. <laughs> and you said I can pick it up and read it when I want to, you know, so that sounds perfect for like. Exactly. Well, and I mean, if you're standing in line or going someplace, wherever. Exactly. Okay, hey, maybe well, someday Steph, I'll make an app into it. <laughs> hey, all right. Well, Steph, thank you again, and you have a great weekend, and I will talk to you in the near future. Well, we'll keep in touch. I have to thank my guest, Steph Turner, founder of Anacology, the Disciplined Study of Need. Her book, You Need This, Introducing Anacology, the Study of Need, is available on Amazon. She plans two follow-up books on the subject, We Need This, followed by We Need You. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.